there's a it's interesting that as we were preparing for for this cast i was thinking about a lot of things related to social spiritual emotional kind of development and awareness and keenness but um yeah i forgot to be thinking along the lines of you know having lost my dad and as soon as like you were like we were talking about ah, we're at different places now you know that does color uh so so much uh now in every way so the 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 interesting thing is that i hadn't been thinking about that but also the relevant aspect of you know so much even of like just the last week of having gone through a celebration of life like we haven't even touched on that but that culmination of sorts is so necessary that ritual was you know like as soon as I got home that next day and and um you know started to say goodbye to people and trickled you know like two or three days after after that was done and everybody was gone you know, I went into my living room where we've had this setup, you know, for my dad, where where it is that I received the call in which I woke my boys up to just say goodbye. In that living room, we we've had this place that memorialized my dad in our own unique way, and at the same time was was product of what we had lived in China, which was to have a four bedroom house a square with a room in each corner and a a t-shaped cross-shaped hallway right in which one of the main corridors was a place to you know be reverent and remember your ancestors and so it seemed only appropriate to have that in our house it seemed you know impossible to not have that Um, Mm. and yet haven't been thinking about how long this will be there, but rather feeling it. And it was, you know, it's in these days that, that I've finally like that would, that would be okay. Um, for that to become a new space now, whereas in, you know, in weeks before I was just telling glow, like, um, we would, you know, in the first days after the whole thing, you know, I would just sit there, I would ask her to light a candle, and then we would just drink a glass of wine together and say nothing, <laughs> you know, and so there's been right. this whole progression of being able to be in these spaces in different ways, and there's certainly, having gone through this ritual recently has allowed a an ability to sense closure, not in a finite way, but in a passing of a threshold sort of way um, Mm -hmm. enough to feel like a before and after very evident that you would hope from a ritual such as gathering the whole family in Belgrade where my family is from family and friends and being able to commemorate you know and so much that goes into that but you don't necessarily know that the end result will be let's step into a life now without dad physically present but that has happened at least for me and 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 it's concretely felt when i'm like oh 
we can put these things back to their own little locations all throughout the house. All this memorabilia doesn't have to be all like funneled in and centralized in the living room. It can, it can go back to its own unique spaces. Um, uh -huh. he, he can live everywhere. Um, you know, and cause I can hold all of that loosely now, that sort of thing. I think that's a good place to start. Uh, after a long hiatus, Carl and I are getting back to it. Uh, so this is the Ehekat series of the Originative Origins podcast. And this episode's focus is emotional and spiritual learning. And how does that happen within education? How do we support that? Um, what do we do about those realms? They're not typically talked about uh, or addressed in conventional education. Uh, it is definitely part of holism, which is what we're after here. And I am one of your hosts, Ron Green, a.k.a. Lucian Nather. And I am Carl, a.k.a. Gluscabi. And it is so great to be back, ready to play off of however long it is since we've been here and whatever has happened in your life and be ready for it to inform a little bit of this conversation. Great to be here. So you were saying before uh, you were talking a little bit about the way that you and your family have been processing the grief uh, following the passing of your father and specifically about the space uh, that was created in your home and how the processing of that has uh, evolved little by little over the last couple of months. I want you to say more about, you touched on the, um, the relevance that China and your experience in China and the altar in the corridor that you had that was, correct me if I'm wrong, was that a built-in fixture to the house that you moved into? Yeah, well, so most houses in China will have a considerable space dedicated to the ancestors. In, in the fishing village where we lived in Waigao, the, all of the houses had basically the same architecture, which was a square box. If you go in through the middle of a square box, right, you have off to the side two rooms. You continue straight, you have a straight corridor right to the back and mm -hmm. right there, right, facing the main entrance to the house would be the altar area honoring the ancestors and it occupied far more than what the biggest lcd plasma tvs would in you know a modern local metropolitan home no matter where i'm not going to contrast east and west right because you <laughs> certainly also because this is a village home right so uh -huh. as you move into the metropolitan chinese home you see how the ancestors are cornered more and more so right and so the, the the lcd has moved into the drop down you know um screen uh for projected you know television um but the ancestors now live in kind of like this little corner every now and then they get a little bit of attention but in the in the smaller fishing village where we were it was still you know like a lot of the homes didn't even have tvs and if they did um 
first of all they listen to them really loud <laughs> so you can you can you can tell when you're when you're taxi driving you know neighbor is watching tv it's his little 30 45 minute session because it's coming straight through your walls but when i would go and visit him i would see the dynamic right and it was it was still the altar right at the big part of the entire, I would say an entire room dedicated to that. And he had brought in a little TV and he was sitting kind of in this awkward position towards it. Um, anyway, uh -huh. my, my point being, if I go into the impact of that, the slow impact of it, because we lived our first three years in China in a place that we just rented out, which means everything's been taken away um, and, and you move into a space that's fully yours. In this right. fishing village, there was a, a little bit of a courting that knew, needed to take place for us to have the ability to live in this, this home. And they granted us the space, um, but the ancestors were left there. And so we had the whole house to ourselves, but there was this one major area, <laughs> major central area that was not to be touched. And we adapted so, to that. Okay. So speak a little bit more to that idea of courting, because it sounds like what you're getting at is that you rented the house, but um, truly it was a rental. Like you were acknowledging that you were occupying someone else's space and it didn't cease to be someone else's space while you were there. Yeah. So it is uncommon to rent a village home. Those are, it's not a commodity that, that you would profit off of. Um, it became <laughs> with insistence, perhaps I'm not sure what transcended before we got this place, but it was allowed, but without us knowing part of us going was that the ancestors would always be there. I mean, <laughs> it's easy to articulate now, but it wasn't, you know, upon arrival, it really only first kicked in, you know, for the first new moon after us being there, which at the time we were not, we, we had already as a family been following some aspects of the moon. There's a celebration of the full moon that comes more naturally, but that when the new moon occurs, then my, you know, I happened to be at work and, and my wife came out of the room and, you know, wearing little to no attire. And uh, <laughs> uh, the, the landlord was in the living room, which was the pathway to the bathroom with fruit and incense, honoring his father and the father before the father. And, and there was this screech. <laughs> <laughs> that interrupted the, 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 the ritual. And then uh, I received a phone call and then we had everybody trying to understand why this man's in the house. And, you know, and, 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 and then we understood why he was there, which was to, to honor them uh, and, and to thank them for all of their efforts in allowing this home for him and his kin and, and also us. The, 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 and for the blessing, and I've never even really articulated it because, you know, these things come slowly, but 
it's realizing that that was never removed. Um, we learned to live with it and we expected the arrival. Um, and then, you know, now, you know, in our own home and upon a lot of other experiences that involve the importance of our ancestors that we were able to pick up during our time in China, it, it you know, when, when my father passed away, he, he became one of those ancestors that right. required such an honor. I mean, I was like, well, if others honor their ancestors, I better heck honor, their, you know, the dad that I say that I love so much. Mm. But no matter, no matter how much one reads about how to be a parent, you become a parent in the process of parenting. And no matter how much I had been preparing for the eventual, by no means so soon passing of my father, it's only been in the process of being in that, that anything worthwhile mentioning about the learning of the emotional and spiritual processing of that is worth mentioning. It's been the experience that has from different places and different walks in life, such as living in a house in a fishing village in Southern China, in which they honored their ancestors that has informed a never before experience of this in which it just felt right in that uh -huh. moment to ritualize and bring back the richness of who we became during our time there. We didn't, you know, we say it all the time, like, you know, like being a missionary kid and everything, we did not go there to set anybody straight. Uh, we went there to learn what it is that we were lacking for not having been there you know, the first half of our lives. And clearly it had a lot to do with spirituality is not only a relationship with the divine, it is a relationship with the divine through our ancestors that are no longer physically with us yet very much with us. Yeah. I, so this has been a fascinating journey for me to witness, right? Um, not to experience firsthand, but to, to sort of observe how you and your family have gone through this uh, and Javier, as he was over there. Um, what you experienced was a mentoring without you necessarily knowing that you were being mentored, right? Uh, so all of this was modeled to you little by little. You were in a situation where you, you know, I had to kind of just accept that this is the way that things were, you know, because you were sensitive enough to know that you weren't going to complain, right? You know, or to, to not complain about it or to, not to demand. As I'm sure that some folks that weren't accustomed to that might be like, you know, this is not acceptable because this doesn't happen where I come from, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm not going right. to, I'm not going to let this happen here. And why would they dedicate all of this, you know, area of the house 
for something like this because my my culture doesn't do that that seems like a feeling that we might know a lot of people that might have that feeling um or 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 those demands uh, but you were in the situation where you were sensitive enough to say whoa we didn't know that this is how it is but this is how it is so we're going to go with the flow and as you did that somehow that seeped into the way that you felt was appropriate to uh, experience and to move forward through the grief with your father. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. <laughs> so you guys have um, this altar within your home. How much of that, I mean, you don't need to give us a percentage or anything like that, but it's like, how much of that was informed by this modeling that you didn't ask for, but you got it. You were there to learn. And, you know, there, it's, all, it's always great to move into something and say, I'm a learner. I have no idea what I'm going to learn <laughs> from this situation, right. right? Like that's what you hope that uh, that mentors, you know, as mentors like have really started to, accept their craft, and then they move out into the world to begin to polish it, whatever that's going to look like, because it's different for everybody. You hope that that is a reflex and a, and a comfort at some level, that, that, that when people move into learning, they don't do it through this uh, strategy of setting up walls and barriers, that they go into it saying, I have no idea what I'm going to learn, but I'm going to be open to all of the things that are going to come understanding that that whatever's coming uh, and how it comes is a part of the language that I'm learning to speak with something that's bigger than me. Yeah. So were, were there, uh, like, how did that process happen? Were there other things that influenced along the way how the, the process of, of accepting and nurturing that honoring of ancestors happen um or was it just you know was it just this something that you picked up from that altar and watching other people do it i mean what what was the what was the process for you and your family as you moved to you know fast forward to maine now you're living in maine you're with your your folks you're you know and and then it turns out that that your dad has has his passing well I think that if I go back way back, I would say, and, and if we're talking about spiritual pathway, I would say that it's key to have come to a certain point in my life where I said, hmm, I'd, I'd really like to understand all of this in a new way. Uh, so this is going back to like years at a Christian liberal arts school studying world religions, uh, but really not open to embracing any of that, which I was studying, but more so to kind of understand the enemy to win them over. I mean, really, <laughs> that's what's going on. You're like understanding all of their tactics to kind of put them in their place in this 
one great final C.S. Lewis apologetic debate. Who's ready so I can bring it on? Because I've I've been in your mosques. I've read your Quran. You know, like, oh, well, gosh, you've got to evolve past the desire to set the world straight. Um, and That's then well to said. see, you know, like, and, 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 and to just be able to be like, what do I have? yet to learn which is so much right and that's really one of the primary reasons that there was an appeal to go to china which mm -hmm. was for me you know I, I grew up with this moment during dinner where my mom would bring out the globe right straight out of the 70s and she would put the globe on the table and then we would spin it you know and and we would put our finger on it and pray for a different nation. And then at some point, this thing called the 1040 window came in. I, have you ever heard of the 1040 window? No. What? Okay. No. All right. So, so you've got to like, you, you can Google this up. Okay. 1040 window was this spree in, in evangelical movement. I would say eighties, nineties, where you would look at the parallels Okay, um, the longitudinal lines on the earth and the, there was this window, the 1040 window, the latitude and longitude of 1040 that would that, that had the most number of unsaved people in the world. And so there was this like movement to like pray for the salvation of those people. And China was like right in it parts of China. I don't know if the entirety, I, I mean, this is just like, I'm going off on stuff that somehow was ingrained at such an early age. And so, you know, fast forward, long story short, I was like, well, what? I, I wonder why, I wonder why, like, how can people exist without such great information like I do as how to be a good person? Like how, if these people don't know anything about it, like, how do they, how do they not just like, how do they function? Like blow their heads off, like, and, and just, you know, commit terrible crimes all day. And, and, you know, like, unlike us, right. There's this certain, just like, like, what is going on? How can they survive without, you know, what I, having lived in Chile, Costa Rica and the United States, there's for as much as they want to preach, you know, separation of church or state, or we're a secular society. We are a monotheistic Judeo-Christian informed nation. And so is Chile. And so is Costa Rica. Yep. There's yep. not a lot of difference and it's okay. But how the heck does somebody actually turn out to be good without that lens? And, and so you got to have enough of a question to be able to even listen and be willing to be a learner. And, and that was one, one of the reasons why I was going to China. Um, mm. Others were related to like, I'm an educator, uh, uh, a language instructor, second language instructor, but I grew up bilingual know what it's like i wrote an article that was published on tolerance for ambiguity 
but it wasn't until I was actually in China that I could experience the, the like <laughs> ambiguity, right? And in my need and lack of tolerance for it and, and deep struggle with it, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, so I don't want to get carried away. There were multiple reasons, but there were unique reasons. And, and so to go to China, I think that was the first that that informed a lot. I was going to see, well, how is it that these people are informed on, on ethics, you know, Mm -hmm. how to be good. Why are you good? You're not good because you're going to heaven. You don't even think about the world like that. So why are you trying to be good? Um, So what a great question though. Uh, I mean, I applaud you for admitting that being vulnerable enough to admit that question. Um, because it's a natural question to have at some point. Um, and then to pursue it takes a certain amount of courage, depending on who you are and where you're coming from, you know, how much you're dependent on, um, the programming that you come from. Um, and I don't use that word programming in, in a good or bad way it's just it is what it is it's like there's exactly it's you know, not like dismissive or no. you know it, it, but we we are programmed and into the extent that we can be aware of that programming um will allow a deprogramming yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway you know we, we we go over there and i would say that you know one of the things that i progressively understood uh, you know in terms of a very basic question why are you good right? You're not, you're clearly not good because you're trying to get to heaven, but maybe you're good because your ancestors are looking at you and they deserve that you live a good life because you would dishonor them. Wow. The the ancestors demand that the people that among the living live a good life or, or else their transgressions would dishonor them. Absolutely. And, uh, and not, and not only ancestors gone, but then you have the whole filial piety notion of you take care of your parents while they're still alive. Uh, and so therefore you're like, this is not stuff that was articulated and spelled out to me by, by like the local philosophers or something like, I didn't really have a lot of access to that. You know that, I mean, the language barriers was one, but also when you're in a society that is so populous um, and you have a language barrier, you're mostly running into the everyday Joe. And the everyday Joe isn't explicating their philosophies and theologies and approaches towards how, <laughs> why you live good. They, they, you basically pick up on, on nuances that are deep and profound and anchors of who they are. And one of them is you honor your parents. So why isn't there like a lot of like crime and um, why are kids going to work their butts off being the second generation in a tier of three why because the setup is mom and dad took care of me i want to take care of them while they're taking care of my kids that that that's just how society works so i'm good because you know mom and dad deserve that we are mostly like waiting for the moment to be out of the watch of mom and dad so we can do whatever we 
won finally and not it doesn't matter if they catch us or not you know there's this whole other thing operating and in and in china it's as soon as you reach that quote-unquote mature age you're stepping into major responsibilities you ain't moving out you're taking on the responsibilities of supporting mom and dad because they're going to be the ones taking care of your kids because you're putting in so many hours and that's just the three generations living together. That's why you're good. So, <laughs> so that the whole thing can be functional or else the whole thing falls apart and you want your family to be disowning you and talking about you at the gathering. There's like 200 people just for a small family gathering, right? <laughs> you don't, you don't want that amount of animosity. So you, so you behave. And you throw um, onto that another layer and anybody could, you know, <laughs> if we had people calling in, like could, could take me up on it. And, you know, there's probably things that I'm on and probably things that I'm off, but it's how I perceived and how I could possibly make sense of something that in my eyes was functioning so well, of course, lopsided. I'm not idealizing anything. You have the lopsided second generation that, you know, is making a lot of money, but doesn't have relationship with the parents or the kids. Right. And, and it's all this financial giving. Of course you have, you know, myths paths on this whole dynamic, but, but the essence at the end of the day is I'm not doing any of this to go to heaven. I'm doing it to honor you and be responsible to you. And that's at a human, alive, mortal sort of realm. We take that to the other level, which is our ancestors, more importantly than some God being. Uh-huh. We're not doing any, we're not trying to do any of this for, for the gods. The gods live in such a different realm that the gods don't care about you better do stuff correctly and light those fireworks, you know, and, 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 and those candles and, and so on and so forth, but they're just doing God stuff. Your ancestors are sitting with that grandmother, grandfather grin, looking down at you, making sure and keeping tabs that you actually follow suit with what's expected of you, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. No, I mean, all of this, this is bringing up so many, um, you know, paths that we've like tried to work through and reason out within, within the reality of modernity, at least as far as the U.S. and, and the West goes, is that why is it not like that, right? Because if we go back, you know, 100 or 150 years, would we be, have been closer to that or further away from that? And, I, and I'm, I'm going to say that we were closer to that. Um, society functioned more like that in the West, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Where whether you're talking about first, second, third generations uh, in the Americas or going back further, uh, you know, to Europe or Africa or, you know, where, wherever your ancestors are from, the further back you go, the more likely you are to encounter and engage in that type of familial, communal um, reality. Um, and why is it just a function of our luxury today? Is it just a function of money and wealth that that we separate ourselves from that? That the parents grow up, they send their kids off, hopefully they they fly on their own. And the parents make enough money so that they can afford a retirement home, you know, 
and then they don't have to rely on their kids. Like that's what I see a lot from the baby boomer population here in, in the United States is this like shame for relying on their kids. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there's this, there's something inside them that, that, that they don't want to have to rely on their kids. Mm -hmm. Right. They, they want, <laughs> yeah. they want to have been able to do it all on their own. And, and, and it's like, well, what if we were never supposed to do, what if you were never supposed to do it all on your own mom and dad? <laughs> well, and, and I will frame that within every, all of the grief talk we're having around the wake of my dad's passing is that, you know, I've said this multiple times. I didn't come back here to the United States to go on a fishing trip with my dad. I came yeah. back here to feed him and then to bathe him and then to be by his side. I, I was stolen that chance. And in my darkest moments, I, I reprimand him for that, for having gone too soon. And, ah. and that's a whole other topic. But I certainly feel that him and, and my mom now and, and the entire generation that you're talking about does try to just kind of not need you know that i feel that right up and it's like this but the what what's happening in my family is just this like determination to maybe tabletop that and and say yeah whether you like it or not we're gonna take care of you and and it comes with a lot of adjusting you know um to i don't know to social norms or personal norms or whatever generational norms I, i'm not sure but i certainly you know know what you're talking about firsthand when it comes to wanting to care for the old mm -hmm. like the the topic of well where are you going to be who are you going to live with um right now like the skilled nursing facility or assisted living nonsense that is like just talk about working your butt off your whole life and be willing to throw all of your life savings at some nonsense sort of like living accommodation that is like the most expensive rent possible so that your kids are not responsible for you and and, and they don't feel like they feel like mom's okay and out of my hair, you know, and so on and so forth. Like that talk about big business nowadays. And, and, and I would say if you're, cause you were kind of like asking like, where does that come from? Like, you know, like, like there's so much push towards that being the norm and right. so much hesitance and kind of we don't really look at that like that's not the right way like your parents moving in with you is frowned upon where does that come from and 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 as you were asking that question um because it's on both sides of the generations right the the parents don't want to infringe and the kids don't want to be infringed upon and it really takes one or the other to really like push through that and say no this is how it's going to be i mean the major decisions in 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 my family's life like glow and i have to do with where do we want to be in life whenever it is that either our parents need us or accept 
that they need us or you know and and it's not going to be in china and it's not going to be in africa it's right here and it's somehow you know like i i really love like i have actually realized it's like a term now what do they call it the in-law shed or (laughs) shed's probably not the right word it's like the mother-in-law suite or something yeah something like that you know like um you know i've I've got a good buddy down in 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 pennsylvania that that has that you know and and it works out for a lot of things when you visit your friend you have this place and right next to it his in-laws can stay whenever it is that they're visiting long term and there's Mm -hmm. that and i love it because it's like this this adaptation of something ancestral but with the modern nuances i'm not saying that like my mom needs to be watching me tight that whitey tidy walking around the house or you know having a fun little flirt at night with my wife but i am saying that i want to be in close proximity to being able to host care for in whatever way that that is um and 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 right now for our family, it's very much like an open conversation. Mm. And, and I'm thankful that it's at least that. Right. Uh, because I realized there within that, like, you know, there's plenty of places where it's like not even talked about. And I think that the work of Stephen Jenkinson and his book, Die Wise, um, and that has helped me so much over the last few years, like has basically like I would you know what is he really saying? He's just saying let's talk about this. Can we talk about this? Can we can we look at end of life and realize that locking somebody up in a I don't know fourteen thousand dollar a month one room unit <laughs> far away from anybody that you have relationship may seem ideal but is actually pretty impoverished at a very high cost. You know, he said, let's yeah. just talk about yeah. that. Right. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it's nice to be in a place where we can actually talk about it, have a cast about it, talk about it, read about it, go to concerts about it, go to live time. You know, we like to talk about things and I'm glad that that's coming in and we can talk about it because I'm coming from six years in China where I can't talk about anything because I don't speak the language and mm-hmm. I'm just having to be informed by how do people live? What's a priority? Why? Why do you live in that way? Um, you know, and so it's just been a journey. You bring up a good point. I mean, the, the irony of like COVID was that people were paying to have their elders in these community homes. And then all of a sudden they, then they were forbidden to see them. Right. And uh-huh. even if you were in hospice and the person was going to die, you know, had weeks to live, uh, we, you know, as a culture, you know, medical industry decided, hey, no, nobody can see these people. Yeah, they're going to die in six weeks. Guess what? Your oh, your family doesn't matter. You know what matters? No say. COVID, and it's like, well, well, what's so? What's the fear with COVID here? It's like, well, or the fear is you're you're going to die. It's just like, but they're going to die already. It's just, it's like, and people were at the window you know, outside of, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. their homes and, and 
each party was making the excuse. Oh, we're trying to keep them safe. They're going to try to keep them safe. And, you know, but in the hospice situation, it's just like, who, so who are you trying to keep safe here? Yeah. Right. And and, 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 and I would say, what, what are you trying to keep safe? And because a palliative care approach that is non-emotional and non-spiritual in nature or dogma right says that our primary concern and directive is to keep the body functioning no matter what deficiencies the spirit and the emotion has and we will do it at a high price. Right. We will get every cent out of you because that's what the people on that end of it have reduced it to. We, hopefully, we're at this point where, where we're rethinking that, where we as loved ones say, I don't know if that's what I want. You know, if monkeypox is the next thing, you know, <laughs> you know right. going through all going through all, all the, you know, assisted living homes, you know, what then, what then when the next, when the next one comes, when the next one comes, because here's the deal with nature. Nature never stops. Nature never stops innovating, right? As fast as we think we can, as humans, you know, we're, we're so clever. We're going to innovate. Um, nature's just like, okay, well, I'll just do this. Right. Right. So <clears throat> that, it seems like we have a whole system that's about profit at the expense of people. Um, and we're going to make this argument to make, to sort of push the people off. And the more we can keep people within a state of fear, um, then the easier that conversation is. Right. But once you get a little distance from it and it's not, you're not at the scene of the, of the, the catastrophe, um, then you're like, okay, well, should we rethink this? What what do we think about this? You know, how do we want to do this the next time? Mm-hmm. And that's a conversation that I don't hear from a lot of people. You know, emotionally, people are ready to move on. You know, most people. And I'm staying back saying, well, wait, what? shouldn't we have that conversation? It's like, now that we're all relaxed... <laughs> This is the time to have the conversation because everyone can be, can think a little more clearly about it because they're not, they're not wrapped up in, in their own uh, mortality or their kids' mortality or, or, or their, their, their parents' mortality or some place in that. So emotionally, this is the time to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. And it's not to just benefit us. And it's not just for the, so that we're all happy. It's so that spiritually we can feel confident the next time you know some some catastrophe or travesty happens that's why we do that work that's why we do the work of philosophy or religion or education when things are not blowing up you have those conversations so that you Mm -hmm. can build that integrity Mm -hmm. build that wisdom and and build the trust in in um in people and and your systems hopefully but I think that we're at a we're at a place where that has been eroded uh, to to a large part, and I see it within the system of within education, whether it's preschool, uh, elementary school, middle school, high school. It, the way that that manifests at each level 
emotionally is a little bit different. And it's no big surprise that at the, at the high school level, you get these very black and white idealisms or a heavy dose of cynicism, right? Like, like, uh, they, like the kids like, that are really wait. critically thinking are like, yeah, this is all bullshit. <laughs> right? Well, there's a lot that I want to bring up in terms of spirituality. Um, because I think cynicism stems from an impoverished sense of spirituality. Yes, what, what, but, but I want to say something else. I think it also stems from a desire. It's a desire for something more relevant, worthwhile, and profound, more purpose. And when every day, when you're living in a system that denies that all yes. the time. Yes, it's yes, just yes, like, yes. Oh yes. my God, what else do you do? No, we're getting at this, but maybe from different sides. I, what, what, what I, like a kid in high school that is is expressing and manifesting cynicism, right? Um, let me finish my thought on spirituality that is only fixated on deities, whether it be the existence mm -hmm. or the non-existence, uh, is an impoverished understanding or awareness of spirituality. Ah, yeah. You know, so so an interesting thing in all of this conversation, I've never thought about, never expressed, but for as much as we have a very strong Sam Harris led uh, atheistic, you know, endeavor going on um, and has been for a while, God is dead. Right. Great. Okay. Okay. Whether or not that's true, I'm not really concerned if and when I take a look at a different question, and I'm going to touch on two others. Are my ancestors truly still with me or not? Do they give a shit or not? We're, we're, we're moving away from this de like deistic <laughs> understanding of spirituality into like us before or after here, not here, them, us. And for the most part, death is death. And, and thankfully, you go to this other place and we're kind of done in the West. And there's very little consideration unless it's from, you know, a, a, an indigenous perspective of the ancestors still being with us and still thriving. It's non-existent. No matter the monotheistic tradition that we're coming with, which is the largest population of everything, it's... Right. Spirituality is defined by a belief in God and what's his name or her name. It's not defined by a relationship with our ancestors after they're gone. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Okay. Well, right. what about right. so what about when it comes to a relationship with the environment and with the plants and with the earth? You cannot, it is, it is, show me a kid that cynicism has not been chipped away at, that is held responsible or invited into a relationship with the plant. There is life, 
there's responsibilities. They are very real. There is fruit to be to bear. And there is either a utilitarian approach to that plant or a spiritual relationship to it. But spirituality is not fostered in terms of our relationships here in the present and forevermore. It's not spoken of or understood in terms of our relationship here with the planet and, and, and what makes us live and the food that we put in and what goes out and those cycles that are always existing. It is almost as if spirituality is this think of, do you believe in God or do you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. And which that, is, which is pretty, pretty shallow. And that uh, would foster you know. cynicism because yeah. any, any, any teen walking into their freshman science classroom can smell the bullshit yep. because yep. the conversation yep. is, is not allowed to be big enough. Be- now this is where we go into this whole other realm of like, where are these things coming from? Why are we in the state? You know, like so on and so forth. It does come from our monotheistic traditions and, and our ancestry. It does. You know, you, before you were asking, why are we like that towards our ancestors? Well, we left them in Europe <laughs> over here. Nobody talks about like that movement in that way. We always talk about it like we came here to set up new England, yeah. right? And, and, and then it's like, yeah, and you left mom and pops. What the heck did they do? They had been coming from generations of you would take care of them and you left. What did you do? Send care packages by Western Union back over to Europe? <laughs> you left those fucks and you started up from, from the ground up. And, right. and there's great stuff that I always applaud the Emmons and the third generation coming over here and moving their way from Boston up into Wells and then into Samford and Biddeford and blah, blah, blah. But whoever it is that got on that ship left a lot behind. And I know that too because life gave me enough to go in my own little narcissistic kind of endeavor to kind of see why Chinese people are good to then come back and say, this is where I'm from Uh this land and my ancestors are here and we're going to take care of them. This is getting to a, a great piece. I don't think that we can engage in emotional education without a bigger picture of the family and familial relationships as being a part of that, but absolutely not without having an idea of what relationships with all other things are, with all living, living things, with the plants, with the ecology. If you ever hope to have a spiritual moment, it's something that is beyond the relationships that you've established. So if you're not inclined to build relationships, or you're not inclined to see where, where those have value, then how are you ever supposed to be at a place where you can accept or even understand or, or start to process something that is spiritual? Um, uh, understanding that the spirit or that being inspired or respired, like, that going back to the etymology of that, it's a it's a life essence, right? And life doesn't stop with humans. It's not an ethnocentric mm-hmm. thing, right. and that's and that's a a real challenge with 
a lot of the aspects of our culture right now um, because uh, it's not a racial thing the way that that's divided up. It's that most races think that humans are pretty much like the greatest thing ever. And that's mm-hmm. what they're worried about. Mm-hmm. And we're even having conversations about climate change and, uh, and ecology and the green movement is mostly about like, what does this mean for humans? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like if the sea levels rise, well, then that's going to, you know, hurt a lot of people's property. <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, if we look at it on a, on a geological scale, it's like, if you just take humans out of the equation, it's like, the earth's going to be fine. Right. Like, <laughs> like there's, there's mm-hmm. okay. She'll get better. Right. This may just be like a bad teenage trip. Right. <laughs> like you've seen this. It's like when you, when you engage in emotional and spiritual learning with preschool, it's like, well, they're not disconnected from it. So it's easy. Right. It just happens. It's always, it's all, it's, it's all there. It's all happening in the moment. Uh-huh. And really what you're doing is responding to what sort of habits have been built into them and programmed already before the kids engage with you, <laughs> right? Because the first time I see a kid like, like have an inclination to kill a, a, some sort of creature, whether it's a spider or a centipede or a worm, you know, like to dismember it or take it apart and to, or to, especially out of fear. It's like, that is a learned behavior. That mm-hmm. is a, I don't have a relationship with this. I don't want a relationship with this. I'm not about relationships. And, and so that fear structures are already. I've been really, told that really to good. have a relationship with this would be harmful. Yeah. 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 So if that's the population that we're dealing with, it's like, okay, well, that's the conversation that we need, that we need to be having. It's like, how do you, mm-hmm. you know, build back the trust in, in those other relationships, you know, not just like the humans trusting, you know, that the, that the roly polies are going to be okay, <laughs> you know, that they're going to do something, you know, what, the, what, the, whatever they do is worthwhile, because that's really what it is, is that is, is you're, you're having to convince humans that what these, creatures do has value right Mm -hmm. and 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 the older the adult is who has this like you know perversion in their mind of like we must kill that thing um then the more sophisticated the argument has to be is like well this is why humans or this is why spiders are important right uh uh, they (laughs) do these things (laughs) they actually have these functions within within the ecology the etymology of roly poly would probably come in ha- handy <laughs> in some <laughs> some convincing argument. It probably would. I mean, like just telling people that they're land crustaceans is just like, what? What does that even mean? <laughs> right? Like you can at least get a space, right? Like you can like create a little pocket to to have the conversation with. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it it reminds me a lot of what you talk about in terms of like. Um, don't don't uproot anything that you only know the name weed for. <laughs> right? right? Right. If if all you do is call it roly poly and that's all you know about it, let it live until you've learned at least something more about it. Right. That's a good rule of thumb practice, right? Before you rip up a quote unquote weed, what plant is it? Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't, you know, like, I'm not saying like, 
uh, you might not know the name for rattlesnake, but if it's trying to bite you, you should probably move, right? Like, <laughs> like, like that's just common sense, all right? But we seem to be at a place where common sense is, where everyone's just like, well, is that really common sense? <laughs> you know, should we have, how much com- how much sense is actually common? And that's a, that's a philosophical, it's a great philosophical question, right? Like, like to just throw that out there. But, um, you know, if you're being chased by, by, you know, a, a jaguar you know, or, or a mountain lion, it's like, um, you know, doing something to preserve your life, is probably very instinctual and you should do that. Right. Like, but, but a roly bully isn't trying to attack you with giant claws and, and is going to eat you for, for his lunch. And so, um, there's no reason to uh, to have that inclination of I must kill this thing because I don't know what it is. And it looks strange. That is the place where prejudice and and with all the talk of racism lately, I'm like, actually, it starts there. It starts with identifying things that are different or unusual or unknown, and seeing them automatically. You taking the default right. that that's a threat. Right. And then saying, I don't know what that is. I don't want to know what it is. Right. I don't, I don't want to know what their existence it looks like to me. And so it's a threat. And so no, you know, like they're bad and I need to preserve my life. And aren't all racial problems essentially that where you're, you're choosing not to really know uh, an other and then deciding that somehow whatever's happening on their side is a threat and that needs to be dealt with so that you can keep what you have or that you can stay safe or, you know, like all of those, uh, like the, the, the issues stem from that, but it, it's a propagation of this idea that if it's different, it's bad rather than looking at it like a really big family. You know, if you have 10 kids in your family, um, <clears throat> 10 brothers and sisters, all of them are going to be different. All of them are going to have like, different habits, different, you know, talents, different personalities. Some are going to be, you know, really well liked by the parents. Some will be like, oh, that's the other kid. You know, that's that kid who just never got it right. But but it's like the, the whole idea is that you coexist as a family. You don't cease being a family. And 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 part of part of that emotional movement towards a spiritual possibility, I think is getting to the place where you see everything around you, the trees, the grass, um, huh. the flowers, Good. the roly bullies, the, yeah. the animals as, as part of your family. There's something that I've heard often said in different circles that we've shared that says all relations. It seems that that's speaking towards this. What, what, where does that come from? And what is that referring to? Because that reminds me or seems to speak towards far more than the only thing that's important is that deity that I believe in. Mm. Uh, When you say all relations, the, the challenge is so high, yet so simple in nature because it's all uh but it's so high that you can go through all the things that you can imagine and then then you just have to accept that there's other things that i am not 
honoring that are also my relations and I will come to an understanding of my relationship with them soon enough, hopefully. And, you know, when we go back to that question that you were, that you were putting out earlier, if we're going to talk about a regenerative approach, regenerative means that we once had it and we need to bring it back. Um, right. To speak of, or to acknowledge something such as all relations seems to be a powerful statement of existence in which there's my relationship with the God or gods or goddess that I believe in, but there's also my kin. There's also my ancestors. There's also the plants that I eat. There's a, you know, and if there was just as much emphasis on all of those, I think that responsibility would be so daunting and yet tangible that we would spend far less off course. Mm. I think that phrase, all relations or all my relations, that statement just disintegrates the obsession with individualism because you're admitting that there's something else that so, you're accountable so before to. You, before you go into that more, like where does that come from? Why have I heard it? Right. It's not something that I utter, but it's something that comes. I've been around it kind of like um, when, when you were asking me about, um, you know, like having a place to veneer, my father in his passing, you know, like I picked up on some things while I was in China. Um, being in and around the community of Originative after over a decade, uh, I know of all my relations. I, I guess I could be asking more, but I'm asking now um, yeah. because it seems to be representative. It's never struck me wrongly. It's, it's always been something that has subtly without imposing suggested that I need a broader sense of what I am accountable to. And I'm not entirely sure where it comes from and I'm not entirely sure what it's referring to, but it feels right. It feels like it's a tap on the shoulder of a prayer of my youth that ended with amen and yet it speaks towards much less of a manageable, uniform relationship with one. And it just broadens the scope in all directions. And I begin to feel that as I grow corn in my garden. There's a reverence that is felt over time not with the first crop, right? It's mostly with the first several seasons of failure, <laughs> but eventually there's something that says all, you know, like when you look at that color wheel, you can't, you can't look at a color wheel, you know, or those ones where you send me cause I'm colorblind and you're like, which is the hex color. And it's just this spectrum that clearly goes from like light to dark. Right. 
And how do you choose which one of those is more important than the other? Yeah. You cannot. It, it, they, all ha- they all depend and exist in relationship to the other. Right. All relations seems to suggest to me something of that accord. And it's, you know, I've, I haven't asked it before, but it feels right. And, and it seems to be on target with a lot of the things that we've been weaving in and out of through this great conversation. Sure. Yeah. For me, I learned that phrase from going to lodge, from going to sweat lodges. Uh, so it was understood to me that it was a, a translation of, uh, of a Native American phrase. I don't think that I've ever read anything or come across anything that has accredited that to one nation versus another. Um, although maybe it does, and I just don't know. When I look deeper into what I've learned about different indigenous cultures around the world, that concept of all my relations seems like it's present in all of those, what uh, Martine would call intact communities. That if the culture still had a holistic sense about it, that honoring all of the relations and seeing that relations were the connections to all of the things that kept this existence going. I think back to a Sami movie that I saw several years ago called Pathfinder, where the naughty, the shaman grabs his uh, this kid around the neck and, and he's choking him. And he says, how are you not connected to everything? <laughs> no, as soon wow. as you take a breath, you're connected. And every time you take a breath, it's an exchange of connection with all of the things that are connected to that thing. And wow. the important thing is to remember the connection, right? Wow. You might not remember it every breath, but if you could right. remember it every breath, you know, and he, mm. he was particularly talking about Gothic invaders at the time. And you're saying the, the Goths, the invaders were people that had forgotten their connection. And I think that you can see oppressors. Mm. Um, and, and Accor- sort of a, according to who? Uh, like uh, mid, you know, 1500 Sami? Like who? who? Well, the shaman at the time. And so the, the Sami were sort of conquered little by little. I mean, they were never fully conquered. They're, they still exist to this day. Uh-huh. You know, the reindeer herders in the northern northern Sweden. Was it Norway, all Goths Finland, or was it Russia? Was was it what was he referring to? I'm I'm not that familiar with with the Gothic movement. What was it an invading species of Goths, a colonizing Goth, or is it just no? Goths they, were, they were invaders, so they had come across across the sea right. and started to move north into uh, into Sami territory. But in their own territory, before they began that invasion, they must have had something that was pure so that's so that's a question of at what point right right do cultures yes yes forget that they're yes. connected yeah and one of the fascinating things about that is like how is the structure of the language that you speak a tool that perpetuates the disconnection right like i think english in many ways perpetuates disconnection and so if that happens to be your language, particularly if it's the only language that you speak, it's hard to know 
or to be able to see it, to have any sort of distance or perspective to say whether that may be true or maybe not, right? Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean? Where, where, where are we going here? So like when Praktel talks about how indigenous cultures didn't have a word for to be, they only had a word for to belong. Mm-hmm. The idea is that imperialism starts with the verb to be, because as soon as you have the verb to mm-hmm. be, then you can disconnect yourself because you say, I am. And as soon as you say, I am, you're, you're separating yourself from all other things. I am, and, which thou are not. Right. You do it by default. Versus that's new. So there would have been a time where it's impossible to say that, to even think of it, because what you would be able to say or think was, I belong. Right. Or, so or people I, say, I, am a, but I am a warrior, would have been impossible. What you, what you would be saying is, I belong to the warriors. Yeah, or that I commit myself to, let's say, the function of protecting the village. Right. Uh-huh. Like that's what I do, right. but I, I belong to that. So part when of did, the when did the verb to be come into existence? Well, from what I understand, and I'm not a linguist, uh, but the verb to be really emerges with literacy and the function of text, textual literacy. So with the alphabet, so as we begin to write things down, um, the verb to be, which, which makes sense because the, with writing, there's almost like this possibility for meandering into all sorts of necessary or not necessary precisions of language. Right. There's two sides to all of this. Um, with literacy, you also get nuance. And so you get, right. and with great right. nuance, right. you get eloquence. And so, yes, precision mm. is one mm. way mm-hmm. to look at it, mm. but also the intimacy that you can speak to and of and about and around something can also increase, right? Yeah. Because, um, because you don't need so much context, you can actually put it all out there. And, and, and this is one of the reasons that I think that English as a language has a possibility that isn't often seen with it. It has a possibility to express those relationships and that mm-hmm. belonging in, mm-hmm. in a really beautiful way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for the most part, it's not used like that. Mm-hmm. And we don't have poetic departments that are encouraging that. Is it, is, it a, that is it a philosophical deficiency? So I think it's a cultural deficiency based on how um, we have mm-hmm. moved towards a individualistic societies. Not only in individualistic, but the way that we use something like cash to eliminate the need for a relationship, right? If we are exchanging goods and services based on relationship, then we'd be far more intimate, right? Like the, the, the idea that we have this phrase yes, that yes. you should never mix business, you know, you should never mix family with business, right? Like yeah, never, right. you know, well, the reason that we have that is because, well, it's really hard to just be that like clean cut and right. cold to family. Right. And we know that right. we, we know that we can't do that. 
even in our Western society that has an, an atrophy of family in many ways, uh, we still have a, a tendency towards nepotism, right? It's like, well, nepotism is considered a bad thing. And it's just like, well, why is it a bad thing? Like I consider like the fact that I, you know, am more prone to protecting my chickens and turkeys, you know, rather than letting them be eaten by the fox and, and, and the bobcat, right? Like, well, that's kind of nepotism because they're, they're like some, some family that's closer to me and I, and I want to protect them. And I want to engage in, in this exchange that I have with them, where I make sure that I'm doing what I need to do with, you know, to make sure that they're living the lives that they need to have, you know, there's this mutuality. And when we get to mutuality, and we saw this in, in, when we were dealing with Studio One in Costa Rica, it was like the way that we came to this idea that great education doesn't hinge on the amount of money that you have. It hinges on the quality of the relationships that you foster. Right. right? Well, you're right. circling back to that, that question that I had poised in terms of all my relations, right? right. Let's circle back even to like, you know, you're, you're an educator or a mentor and you've got a classroom or you're a manager of a group. If, if you want to aim towards improved degrees of emotional or spiritual connections, if that's of any importance, then broaden the spectrum from the mono into that which is all my relations. Yeah, that question of like, the way that you pose that is if you want to, that having to ask like the the question uh, or 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 put it as a as an if then statement, you know, having to say, well, if you want this, then this is what you would do. This was what you can do, right? The idea that you have to ask that or that you have to pose it like that is it highlights the fact that we just don't do it. Yeah, like that's not what we do. We don't right. engage in spiritual and emotional development intentionally. You know, what used and, to be. And, and if and when we do, it's it's that I, I'm going to continue to highlight this. It's this impoverished manifestation of it. Right. right. So even if and when we do, it's so small in comparison to what it should be. And we barely even do that. And, and, how, and how could we? Because the, fu the function of public education as we know it, it was never designed, was never designed right. to, to facilitate that. It, you know, it was meant it to disrupt it. that. Well, it, it, at, at the very least, you know, the thinkers behind public education never had to worry about it because they always had the church. The church did that. That was what your... Mm, that was what your engagement with religion was and you know at the wow. time okay could, could, who who would have thought so very compart very compartmentalized approach toward like i love that point that you're making because it's it's not that it was dismissed it's that the responsibility was relegated and for good reason, because it's like, well, what side of that coin are you going to start to teach in school? It's like, you're never going to satisfy mm -hmm. everyone if you have 
if the right. way if so, the way that you think about spirituality is mm-hmm. from that that dios mm-hmm. perspective if, if right. the way that you think about it is from oh, like well spirituality means what god do you believe in it's like well uh-huh. you're, you'll, you will never <laughs> you'll never satisfy huh. all the people that you need to satisfy from that perspective uh so it made the separation of church church and state like uh, the most rational thing that you could possibly do because you're just like well yeah, we're going to educate you on secular things and things that are not uh-huh. values driven or uh-huh. character driven right. and all yeah. of these other things. Yeah. Not that we don't believe in it, but you know, but we don't have to believe in it because society right. is but has a function to to ma- to manifest that in all of these other ways. And now uh-huh. with the uh with the disintegration of church, the disintegration of <laughs> of religion of of belief you know and 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 what has replaced that is is a belief and an obsession and idealism and a and a religion of science so what what what's happened is that wow we are the core of our being has not abandoned the need for that we've just applied it to the only thing that we, that we get if the only thing that we get is oh sort of gosh. secular scientific you know academic based version of of something you know that at best is agnosticism and and at worst is atheism okay well well, well, what what else would you expect Mm. right and so it's like well okay so now we're in this place where you and i are having a conversation about like what do you do about it you know, emotional development and spiritual development, you know, like in all these kids that you're dealing with. It's like you never, 100 years ago, no one would have ever dreamed to have this conversation because everyone just had that, everyone had that taken care of probably to some degree. Okay, so so you broached over a lot of great stuff. And I want to slow us down a little bit because... Not only are we trying to hit at all of this from a regenerative perspective and get at what would a regenerative model of education look like, or what would a regenerative lifestyle look like, but it's also holistic. So there's a tip of the hat towards when all of this kind of began to derail in which it was still somewhat juggled in that schools would take care of one thing because hey if you uh, you know on on the sabbath you want to go to the synagogue and you know hey you over there want to go to the mosque and you want to go to temple and you want to go to church and so on and so forth that exists and it's covered we have no responsibility nor do we have any plight with that we'll take care of this and together we will all move forward in this pluralistic, uh, you know, idealistic society, right? Right. Well, not to say it was like wholly admitting that that was not, that was not by no means egalitarian in terms of how that was administered. Like it right, was, a, right, it was right. a preference for one type of like uh, thinking. Absolutely. Right. We, we understand right. that. The point is that... It, it, there was there was this other sector right just because the public school system wasn't making room for all religions that you know that they could think of on the face of the earth 
they weren't engaging in something because it had nothing to do with the, with their purpose. And it was already taken care of by other institutions within that existed within society. Yes. And uh, I would say if anything, it was a, like a Julius Caesar approach. I'm going to wash my hands of all of this. So um, I, I, I want to interweave a very personal sort of thing because, because when I consider this holistic, you, you can have a holistic experience that is compartmentalized at its core, or perhaps not. I feel free to argument that. But oh, multiple intelligences is, is that it's holistic but compartmentalized. You know, someone is right. each he's person. Defined, yeah, he's right. defined the intelligences, right? Like yeah, the crossovers are these, so hard to plan. These are towards. the these are the intelligences, and you know, and yeah. you know, if I'm going to revise my book next year, I'll think of another intelligence, right? Like, or you know? or and and classrooms, right? We know that subject matters are that the industrialization in which you know you go for math, and then after math you go to reading, like you know, like. Uh, I, I knew of this person. It may or may not have been my son in which they were like, I'm not much of a reader, but your son's doing great in math. <laughs> like, you know, great fourth grade evaluation. Um, okay. So anyway, um, but the, the holistic spectrum is touch on in its compartmentalized ways, but it is, you know, mm. uh, my, the, the personal thing that I'm kind of, and we've talked about this before. It's like, when I look back at my upbringing, I learned to sing. I learned rhythm. I learned melody by just singing <laughs> songs again and again. But song and music in a communal way was checked off my list by the church, uh -huh. not by education. Right. Uh, in school, maybe, you know, like decreasingly so there would be less and less music classes, less and less choir ensembles. And, and we are where we are today. Um, my greatest concerns, having decided to not go to church anymore is, for my children, is not that they would be spiritually impoverished. I think that, you know, as parents, we are able to deliver that and, and we can get into the details of that maybe later. Mm -hmm. My concern is that how will they learn to sing? How will they learn the rhythm of like when somebody, I used to always remember like, you know, I was 11 or 12, they'd be clapping. She, uh, I was going to say she'll be coming around the mountain, but they weren't <laughs> clapping that like, <laughs> right. Okay, and then I'd hear this guy in the back, and I'd be like, wow, oh, what is that? Because I was doing this, and he's now doing, it's like, wow, what is this? And then and then I'd hear, like, and then somebody was like, I was like, what? We're both singing the same, and like I'm just in this space week after week, analyzing <laughs> slowly all of these things that are happening. Right? Like, what what societal entity replaces, you know, modern, um, you know, evangelical Christian denomination 
45 minutes songs per week you know i'm like that's incredible input or the entire gospel tradition or the yeah 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 like yeah that absolutely and 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 therefore what happens as an educator right so i'm in china right where it's not happening (laughs) it's definitely not happening at at the temple that thing reigns for its silence if if but the twinkling of an incense stick burning that's Mm. all you hear right so you go into a kindergarten and you've got this chance to kind of like think about all the things that kids need. And, and we're moving away from spirituality into just musicality here, but from the holistic perspective here, it's, it's, yeah, it, it, it needs to exist. And so let's kick off every morning with just a great time of crick crack. Right. And we're going to sing the heck out of this thing because or else you're going to continue to be and be great to bring up an article on this, but I can testify to it. And you know of it in Costa Rica, the tone deafness that exists in cultures that don't have what we had through these church experiences. We've talked about this, right? that aspect of the holistic spectrum when you choose and this is all going back to like like when people stop going to church there's a lot of things that fall by the wayside science may have picked up its position as having some god to like you know uphold but science ain't making people sing better yeah that's uh, when when things are replaced with some new innovation um i had once read that you know that indigenous cultures when a new idea came to them they would listen to it they would hear they 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 wanted to know all about it and then they wouldn't make a decision for several generations because they didn't <laughs> know how what, what what effect it was going to have Oh my right. Gosh. Like, and so they were like, well, that sounds like a good idea. You know, you've, con- you, 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 you lay out a convincing argument here, but we're just going to wait and see. <laughs> right. Oh you know, and, and modernity can't wait that long. I mean, I mean, oh we have, gosh. we have, we have a problem with ethics in this country um, and in the world regarding science because science moves the technology and the innovation around science moves faster than than human ethics can keep up with it so you have all these innovations happening you know like like people are going to be like well you know let's i don't know let's have humans where you can choose genetically what type of you know child you have you can choose their hair color you can choose their intelligence level you can choose you know if you have money (laughs) <laughs> if you have the money, you can do this. It's just like, what, what we functionally and, and through our technology, we can kind of do that now, right? Like we're kind of moving in that direction, but, but should we <laughs> like, uh-huh. well, what could happen if we do? That's a, a question that that ethical question is, is requires a cultural patience that our culture doesn't have to wait until 
we arrive at a at a good answer to to a lot of those questions. At the same time, when you have an an entire well-oiled machine creating innovation faster than the human culture can ethically digest it, what where does that leave you? I think we're already we're we've been there for a while. You know, you wouldn't have this problem of like social media causing like exponential rates of teen suicide in, you know, particularly in girls, you know, for letting them like hang out on social media. Like you wouldn't have that problem if your culture had a system for dealing with patiently, like new ideas and innovation, not throwing them out, not denying them a a place because you can't deny innovation and movement and evolution a place within your society because then then you're going to die. You're going to fossilize and, and, and crumble. But allowing much more time to digest things and say, eh, yeah, well, let's, let's see how this, let's see how this unfolds. We're just not there. We, we don't mm-hmm. have, we mm-hmm. don't have the, the capacity. We don't have the maturity as, mm-hmm. as a culture for that. Um, and I don't know. So, how, how you so, get, you know, so, so a few things just highlighting as we've moved along is one moving into the, a, a bigger spectrum of like awareness, moving outwards into a consideration of how big something like spirituality is rather than how high something spiritual is. Mm. And, and a second point that's kind of surfacing in all of this is slowing down mm-hmm. um, and, and, and allowing things that, in a in a in a world where everything is instant gratification to simmer into revealing its worthwhileness there yeah. like like those are things that we can really hold on to yeah i i think they're things that we have had to adopt ourselves right Right, like um, you couldn't go to China having made up your mind about everything that has to do with China, you know. From, yeah, I mean, I, I think like, I think it would know. be good to to mention also that you know one of the things that though I had traveled a lot, one of the things that I did not want to do was visit a country as a tourist. Mm. We've uh, talked about this before, the, the problem with tourism. Right. <clears throat> One of the core issues of tourism is it's in and out nature. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have the time in the place for the culture, for the nuances to really seep in. You come in, draw your foregone conclusions or recognize them. And then you're gone. Right. And, and those could be overwhelmingly positive or the opposite right and 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 if they're positive it's even more dangerous because it's foregone right right then you go back and compare your own culture to these illusions Mm. that you have for (laughs) 
the, the how loop. great it is somewhere else right yeah, like, oh like it's a reinforcement of a grass is is always greener mentality and <laughs> it doesn't which which puts you in a place where you're not really willing to work on what's in front of you like well how well, do i let, work on where i'm at right now how do i work on my street how do i work on my you know uh, like my community how do i have a better relationship with my neighbors well <laughs> let, here here's the thing about tourism um not to jump into a different podcast but you're going somewhere quick to get away from something uh-huh. and yeah. then you're coming back with the entitlement of that which you don't nothing about to stay to continue to like empoweredly state how everything's crap here right based on what little he learned elsewhere and gosh talk about traveling once or twice a year you've created a monster of a fuck and if you come back and you reject the place that you went it's 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 equally like ridiculous it's, like, it's a lose it's lose like, transaction it's like what you really think that people who live in this other place have nothing good about, about that they've created right. you know it's like it's insane right it's an ignorance that's afforded by affluence right if you have enough money to travel somewhere and not really engage you know, and I don't care. Like you can be there for a month. That's not really engaging. Right. You can be for there for six months, not really engaging. So it might be a little bit more than a month. You got to live there. You got to eat the dirt and the clay, you know, like Ishtar like reference. You got to, you got to eat dirt and clay from the place that, um, that you're going so that you're made of that somehow. So that that clay and that dirt is part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And then criticize all you want, you know, because as many things as you criticize, you can also celebrate and you could do it from the same place as someone, you know, if, if anyone comes to your hometown and stays there for a month and then walks away and like, just, you know, lays that lays out this, <laughs> this treatise on like, how shitty or how beautiful it is. You'd be like, "Eh, I don't don't know. That is, you know, going back to like, why, why are we the way that we are? Right. So we come from colonizers, no, no matter how you want to put it. And I don't know if you want to vouch for this, but I always have, (laughs) and I know that you've lived this and I don't want to like, suggest exclusive ways of going about things but for as much as twain might have said you know the best way to do away with prejudice and bigotry is to travel i don't know how long his trips were yeah but but i will thought about that too i've i i i can get behind the quote but i can also really get behind yeah travel and make right. sure that when you do, it's not as a tourist. <clears throat> and and that will give you enough to develop that degree of patience 
that we're, re- we're speaking of, where things slow down enough that you're really observing all of the nuances and implications of the way people live in different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, so what's a recipe for slowing down, right? If we're going to talk about the idea that it's great, if you want to develop strong spiritual, emotional know intelligences how how to slow down and you know that from your years of work in the garden there's there's nothing well science attempts to rush things but we know that that's futile you just yeah go with it well if a seed to fruit is 90 days it's 90 days right right 90 days in the best in the best circumstances doing a really good job if you're doing everything that you need to be doing and and nature happens to help you yep uh, you're you're you've done everything right it's 90 days now it doesn't mean that you can't take you know a different fruit that is you know different tomato that's 60 days and hybrid it with you know you know go through the scientific process of hybridization and you know all that and then try to get like you know a 70 day right uh-huh. or you know or uh, you know something in between those two but you're still working with nature like you're not going to create a human in less than 9 months right or you know 8 months or you know premium but you know but you have a window but that it's going to take nature the time that it takes right and that's what you work with. Right. And the challenge with, with I think a lot of people's perspective, uh, especially the the way that um, Sir Ken Robinson lays out the problems with industrialization of public education is that it attempts to put on an assembly line. And with an assembly line, of course, you want to make things more efficient, faster, cleaner, easier, you know, cre- predictable, less predictable. Um, you want to, you want to invest less in the, in the raw product, you know, and get more out of the, the end product. Mm-hmm. You, you want to do all of those things. This is, this is mm-hmm. natural, like human, like innovations. And the problem is that, you know, you're dealing with nature. And so there's some things that you're just not going to change. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if I have a, a, a four-year-old that's coming to me from a traumatic broken home where, you know, the mother's left and the father's maybe living with his parents and, um, and there was, let's just say there was drug abuse, who knows how, you know, like there, there could be a lot of things. And it's just like, you know what, you know what I'm not going to change the fact that all of that happened. And that child is not the same as a child that didn't come from that. It's not to say that they're better or worse. They're different. And it's okay that they're different. Right. And, and emotionally, um, I, I, need to, I need to know that. I need to be aware, be sympathetic, to engage with that, with that child for where they're coming from as much as I need to for the kid that doesn't come from that, right? And that through the process of me developing an authentic relationship with them, it's like, at some point when there are these pathways into some sort of um, spiritual glimmer, like I'm there to kind of take note of it. I'm not there to tell them what my spirituality is and, and, and like 
trying to lay that on them because they are spiritual in a completely different way. What I want to do is learn from them and be able to uh, highlight to them the places that I think are really beautiful. You know, maybe they get it, maybe they don't. I, I don't care. Like, but that's my place. My place is just to walk alongside them. And it doesn't matter what age they are. This the, the high school students they work with the same way. When we start a, a class with a gratitude circle, it's like I don't care if they're grateful for the shoes that they're wearing on their feet or for their family or for the food or for all you know all the things that that one could be grateful for but i want to acknowledge them and and say you know whatever you're grateful for that's that's the place that you're at and that's where you need to be and if that's what you come up with that's what you come up with and and you start there um mm-hmm. if if this is not new to you you laid you lay into this wherever you're coming from mm-hmm. And that ritual of gratitude is an emotional thing and it is a spiritual thing because you're, mm-hmm. you're acknowledging something that is bigger than you. Some, mm-hmm. you know, a young person that appreciates their shoes, whether it's for an aesthetic reason or maybe it's for a functional reason, it's like they're acknowledging that on some level, by some means they came to have this material item that benefits them in some way. And, and it didn't materialize out of nowhere. It wasn't like a Cinderella story where the, you know, a pumpkin lady was just like, here's some shoes. Um, it, it, it was either through somebody's hard work, some of the, somebody's work in pr- producing the shoes and so that's all there. It's all packaged there. Even if it's not articulated, it's there. And, and that is a place that we can go, right? It's a place that we can move towards is, is being able to say, yes. And how did those shoes get there? <laughs> like, how did you come across mm-hmm. those shoes? Right. And the, the community aspect of listening to others be grateful is its, is its own therapy. Mm-hmm. because you're learning it's like you mm-hmm. showing up at a house and there's an altar built into the house and you're like shit this is this is important to these people and when you yeah. sit in a gratitude circle and someone else is just like i am grateful for this and this and this and this yeah you hear that you're like oh okay i know something about them i know something about what it, about how to even be grateful that's modeled. Too. Yeah. Let me roll back the tape a little bit and, and talk about what you've labeled as gratitude circle. Um, so when you and I met, I was at a very different place spiritually as I am now. And likewise, you as to be mm-hmm. expected. But the, you know, right now it's like two separate rivers that have can come together at a delta or something and and it's great but back then as we were starting off an entrepreneurial endeavor in education there's a certain well this is holistic we're gonna have to touch on all aspects where's this guy at spiritually Huh. Where am I at? 
what does this mean? Mm-hmm. And while all of those complexities were playing itself out, it always felt good to gather in a circle of things. And so I, I do want to advocate for that which is plausible and rich while it works itself out. Because whoever's listening will be like, well, what do I do? (laughs) This is nice. What do I do? And light a candle, make a circle, express and invite that which you are thankful for. And that's it. That when you express what you're thankful for, it will take you into some of the other things of this conversation in which everything that is not just, you know, straight up to the gods, but maybe in more directions will manifest. And it will manifest in ways that you may be familiar with and maybe not. So listen. Listen to that which others are thankful for. Listen to how they are thankful for it. It's gratitude can bring us together. Yeah. And gratitude can move us towards a deeper and more complex awareness of what's really worth our time you know oftentimes we would gather in studio one and it would be at the end of a financially difficult day of trying to figure finances out and it would topple as soon as that candle was lit because it's as if in a regenerative way the soul which is always there trying to have a say at the table (laughs) says, Oh yeah. Yeah. There's this other thing going on. Yeah. I was waiting all the time. Gratitude. What are you thankful for? No matter what your stress is or your need. If you find those with whom to welcome thanks all souls will be welcome at that table and it's good practice it's um you know we live in a world where there's a lot of sensitivity of this or that okay no need to declare dogmas if Mm -hmm. we are in an ecumenical circle we can express from our eat each of our own unique ways and to whoever or whomever we want what we're thankful for the stipulation of who that's being uttered to does not matter at the axle of what it means to be human there has always been and always will be a common core which is slowing down which is broadening perspective, which is listening, and which is gratitude, and probably a lot more that hasn't been able to be discussed 
in this time together, but it's a good start. No need to turn our backs on that which tears us apart. But go boldly, as they say. If there is death behind us and death ahead, then no matter if you're in the coldest corporate insurance meeting, go boldly and say, let's put some food on this table like Hafez. Because I don't want to be the only one filling all the bowls. I would like one of you to also put some food on the table. The kind of food that feeds the soul. The way I do. That way, we can invite a hell of a lot more friends. That is brilliant. That's probably that's a great place to leave this. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, I am Lucian Nather, and this is the Origins Podcast from Origin and Eve. Good night.